It's one of these messages that's going to encompass a lot of the Bible, so I like to give you handouts for those, so it's easier for you to follow along. You're not, and I don't have to repeat so many times each passage either, if you have them all in front of you. Um, You can see we've got a lot to cover here, and you can see the theme for this morning. After talking about membership last week, I'm talking about tithing this week. As I said last week, I think it's been about a decade since I've talked about either of these issues, so maybe it's time. Um, I've often been asked over the years whether or not I think Christians should tithe, and and my response is usually, I think that's a pretty good place to start. Um, And I hope to explain today clearly for you all why, why I think that's so. But before I begin, I I want to emphasize an important principle of giving that was taught by our Savior, and this sort of informs even some of the practices here, as you'll see, of the elders. Our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 6, 1 through 4, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, otherwise you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, he'd also talked about praying privately, but we know that Jesus prayed openly at times and that other people did. And we know from Old Testament saints' examples like David that sometimes we know what they gave and so forth. But he's talking about what should be our, our attitude, right? Um, that what should be our typical practice here, I think is what he's talking about. And he says if, if your focus is to be seen by men and uh, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed... And that would include giving, right, alms. Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What a figure of speech there. That your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. So... These charitable deeds would, of course, include almsgiving and giving of all sorts. Um, And Jesus teaches us that our giving should normally, as I said, be a personal, private thing between ourselves and God. And that's one of the reasons why the elders at Emmanuel never know what any particular person in the congregation gives. I have no clue what anyone in this church gives. How much, how little, nothing. And neither does any of the elders, other elders to my knowledge. And we don't want to know. Um, we do know that this is a, a very giving congregation, however, since we have seen the collective giving over the years. And, and at the time, we've been amazed at how much grace God has bestowed on this congregation uh, in this area. So although I'm going to discuss giving and tithing today, <clears throat> I, don't, I don't want anyone to think that I'm aiming this message at anyone in particular or treating this subject because I think there's some problem at Emmanuel in this regard. Nothing could be further from the truth. However, uh, the scriptures do discuss this matter, and so must I if I'm going to teach the whole counsel of God. Um, Besides, um, I'm sure we can all grow in this area. And In addition to my pastoral concern to teach the whole counsel of God, Um, I'm also burdened by the pastoral obligation to warn the flock against false teaching. And false teaching, I would observe, abounds on the subject of tithing today, it seems to me. 
For example, there are some churches that are very legalistic in their teaching about tithing, demanding it from the people in the congregation as though it's commanded of them by God, even though I would argue it isn't. We'll see if I'm right about that before we're done, I hope. Others even teach that we will never be blessed by God at all in our lives if we fail to tithe. Uh, to give him a 10% off the top as though God is some mafia enforcer who's going to destroy our business if we don't pay him off, right? Um, still others combine an abuse of tithing with the teaching of this false prosperity gospel that's all over the place these days. It's sadly one of the worst heresies that's being exported from America these days into all kinds of countries. We have a sister from the continent of Africa who can tell you it's all over the place there. It's a terrible thing. These people claim that God wants all believers to be healthy and, and not just uh, have their financial needs met, but to actually be rich financially. But that God can't do this if we don't give him our tithe first. Um, and usually more than a tithe, depending on the greed of the particular prosperity gospel preacher, who, of course, uh, benefits more than anyone, right, from this. They're in it for the money, in other words. Not because they care about anybody, really. Certainly not because they care about teaching the truth of God's word. So there's all kinds of ways today, and these are I've just given several examples, that this concept of tithing or giving but certainly tithing is abused. And I hope by the time we're finished examining scripture this morning that these types of false notions will be removed from all of us. And we won't, I don't think anybody here is in danger of succumbing to these errors, but, uh, but if you are, hopefully afterwards you won't be. Let's take a moment to pray and then we'll jump into the teaching I have in store here. Holy Father, I do pray for your uh, grace to us. I thank you once again that you gave your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be the wrath-ending sacrifice for our sins, that he is with us now, that he's coming again. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would fill us with your spirit now to understand what your word says on this issue. How should we think about it as Christians? Why have so many generations of Christians thought it wise to practice tithing? Uh, help us to understand this, I pray, from your word. Help us to be wise on this issue as a result. I ask these things for your glory and for our good and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I'm going to start off here by reminding you that they're probably the most remembered teaching on this subject by most Christians and also the reason that they don't think tithing is something we should be concerned about is from the Old Testament Mosaic Law. In several books containing Mosaic Law, we find the principle of tithing discussed and the practice actually commanded. And I just want to look at three of these, and I'm just going to read through them because I want to highlight, and this will be important later uh, in our teaching, uh, on, and when I discuss later uh, Paul's utilization of the Old Testament practice of the priests and Levites uh, getting a living from the offerings that were made. Uh, so this will kind of prepare the, give us the background for that. Um, so in Leviticus 27, beginning in verse 30, we're told 
And this is a command to the people of Israel. And all the tithe of the land, meaning a tenth of the land, whether of the seed or of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wants at all to redeem any of his tithes, he shall add one-fifth to it. And concerning the tithe of the herd of the flock, of whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. And if he exchanges it at all, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. Now, we can't get into all the details there. I just want to point out that this practice of giving a tenth was a part of the Mosaic law that all the Israelites had to follow it. And there he meant a tenth of everything, right? Uh, we also run into the principle of tithing in the book of Numbers, in Numbers 18, verses 20 and 21. We're told that the Lord said to Aaron, remember he was the high priest, and the Levites were the priestly people. The priests would be taken from the Levites and the family of Aaron. And, and, uh, but even those who didn't serve as priests in the same way, all served to take care of the tabernacle and everything in the tabernacle and all the sacrificial things and so forth, and then later on in the temple. And so it's important that this is said to Aaron. Uh, then the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land. Remember, the Levites didn't have any portion of land given to them. God was their portion. Serving God was their portion. Nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel, the tithes that were commanded, that we saw were commanded. They're to be given to the Levites, to Aaron and his family. And, uh, all the Levites, the whole tribe. Behold, I've given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Notice that although the tithe is said to be the Lord's, one of the main purposes of the command of the tithe was to help to support the ministry of the tabernacle and of the Levites who ministered there. Again, Paul will see an important principle here later. One more passage to look at, a, a little more lengthy passage in Deuteronomy 14, beginning in verse 22, says this, You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year, and you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil, of your firstborn of your herds and your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. But if the journey is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money, take the money in your hand, and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. The point of this is that uh, if every tenth animal, if you're so far away you can't drive a whole herd of animals or whatever there, uh, just exchange it, sell everything, exchange it for money, and bring money instead because it's easier to carry the money, right? He's making it easy for them to do this. He's, he's giving them a way to do it that won't be so, so onerous, right, if they have a lot to give from far away. And in verse 26, he says, And you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen, sheep, uh, for whatever your heart desires. You shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household, 
You shall not forsake the Levite who is with you in your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. Now, these are the types of commands given about tithes in the Mosaic Law. However, many Christians today rightly observe that we're no longer under the Mosaic Law. These commands don't apply directly to us. There are no Levites we're supposed to support, no tabernacle or temple. Um, and so it's becoming increasingly popular to take the position that since the practice of tithing is not explicitly taught in the New Testament, it is therefore not a necessary practice for Christians. And I agree that there is no clear New Testament teaching commanding Christians to tithe. And this is one good reason why the elders in Emmanuel do not demand that anyone tithe. Not that we'd know anyway. Because as I said, we don't know what you give anyhow. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we would not encourage tithing as a good and godly practice. Or, as I stated earlier, as perhaps a good place to start in one's giving. But there seems to be a growing sentiment among evangelicals to adopt a stance which asks, why should we tithe? But I would rather ask not, why should we tithe, but why shouldn't we? In fact, why should we do more than tithe? Those are the questions I want to focus our attention on. I think those are better questions. I think that why should we tithe question might come from a place of, I don't have to give that much, I'm kind of stingy. <laughs> I think the why shouldn't we tithe is, is more the question of, what would bother me about giving me a tenth? <laughs> anyway, you know, uh, I, it's a different attitude, it seems, in asking that kind of question. And so I want to I ask this question with what I think is a better attitude. Why shouldn't we tithe? Is there something wrong with the idea? And if there is, what is it, right? In seeking to answer this question, I would like to draw your attention to several lines of argument in Scripture that I think show that tithing is a good idea, even if not commanded of us as it was commanded of the people of Israel under the Mosaic Law. At first, I would like to point out that tithing was the example of godly men before the giving of the Mosaic Law. The, mo the, the practice of tithing wasn't invented uh, when Moses gave the law to Israel. It was already around for a long time before that. And I'll give you a couple of examples that you have there in your notes of godly men who practiced this. The first is Abraham, then still known as Abram, in Genesis 14. And you remember uh, there had been a battle Lot had been captured, and um, Abraham, who was kind of a prince and had a mini army, sort of joined together with some other kings and went and saved him and so forth, and they took plunder. And he, if my memory is serving me correctly, that he went to give a tithe of all that. And this is, I think, the background of what's going on here in Genesis 14, 18 through 20, though I don't trust my memory as much as I used to. I think that's right. Uh, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. Now, this guy's going to come up later 
in our study this morning, this guy Melchizedek. But we're told he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, meaning Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. Now this passage demonstrates for us that Abram, as he was known then, uh, understood that Melchizedek was a true priest of God and that as an act of gratitude for all that God had done and apparently an act also of worship, he gave a tenth of it all to Melchizedek. And the assumption would be that it would go to uh, his priestly duties, perhaps. It doesn't say in the text. But, but this is long before the Mosaic Law was given. We don't know where Abram got the idea to do this. We know that he knew Melchizedek. We know that he acknowledged Melchizedek as a priest of God and that he demonstrated so on this occasion. So maybe he got the notion from Melchizedek. We don't know, but we just know that he did this, that this was a practice already for him, at least on this occasion. We don't know if that he did this with everything uh, and then he stopped in and gave stuff to Melchizedek at different times. Maybe he did. We know at least on this occasion he did this, right? The other example would be Jacob, the what, grandson of, of Abram. In Genesis 28, verses 20 and 22, 22 rather, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Now he's saying, all that I have, I will give a tenth to you. Now where did he get this idea to do this? Well, given what we've been told about Abram before, he probably got it from his grandfather, and maybe his father Isaac did the same thing. Um, and so he's doing this himself. Now, both of these passages, though, are historical narratives which tell us about what Abram and Jacob did. They don't give us a command uh, to tithe. These passages are descriptive rather than prescriptive. Um, however, <clears throat> what they describe is a good response to God. In each case, it would seem a response of gratitude or of worship. Um, and they're, they're recorded for our benefit, right? And we know that God approved of their tithing. We know that this is a God-approved example of something to do. We know that for a fact. Because he later incorporated this practice into the Mosaic Law, as we have already seen. In fact, I think given that that is so, I think it best to assume that Abraham and Jacob got the idea from God in the first place. And who, who knows, maybe from Melchizedek. The priest in the Most High God, maybe he taught him this. We can know for sure, and I don't want to get into too much conjecture, but it certainly is a practice that God approved of. And there seems to be, potentially, in what was going on with Melchizedek, the background for what would happen with Aaron and the priests of Israel, that a tithe would be a way of supporting them. And maybe that was what was happening with Melchizedek. There certainly is an interesting Parallel there, at any rate. 
I wouldn't want to say too much about that. I don't want to read into the text. But I think if we stop and think about it, there's, we can see the unity of, of the text here. We can see some principles that seem to be there, that seem to be similar. But that's the first thing I'd point out. We can't simply say because it was a, a part of the Mosaic Law, and we're no longer under the Mosaic Law, it doesn't matter at all. Well, but wait a minute, it was around before the Mosaic Law, and it was a really good thing to do, and God chose us it's a good thing to do, so we can't just throw it out completely. It's still not a command to do it. Just because someone else did something and got approved of it doesn't mean that we have to do the same thing, necessarily. That's the first thing. Second, tithing was affirmed by our Lord Jesus as a good thing. We shouldn't be surprised by that. He gave the law, right? Uh, the Mosaic Law. And, and we can see this in one of his stern warnings to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23. One of the woes in that chapter. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and amos and cumin, or cumin, however you say that, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. See, he's talking about a practice of tithing that they were doing that was very um, specific <laughs> and got down to minutia. Even your spices that you get, you tithe tenths of those even. And those weren't specifically mentioned in the tithing laws of the Mosaic law, right? But this is how fastidious they were in their tithing. And, and Jesus doesn't think there's anything wrong with that, clearly. Because he says, um, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. I'm not condemning your tithing. Even the, the really detailed way in which you're tithing. Good, that's a good thing to do. So long as in doing that, you think you can avoid. Uh, so long, I don't want you to do that and think you're godly if you're avoiding these other more important things. You can't say, well, I tithe, but I don't care at all about justice or mercy. I tithe, but I don't care about trusting God, really. That's the problem Jesus was pointing out, the kind of hypocrisy. But he clearly says it's something they ought to have done. Good thing. We must also remember that Jesus warned against the legalistic practice of tithing, which I think is what he's getting at here when he calls them hypocrites. Um, elsewhere, also, uh, the, a practice that doesn't come from the heart. It's very clear in his parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So I'm going to take a moment to read that parable. So there's an important principle for us. Whatever we decide to give or however we decide to give it, this is an important principle that we'll see here. God doesn't like hypocrisy in giving from anybody, right? Uh, in Luke 18, beginning of verse 10, Jesus says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, which uh, read that as like the worst sinner you can imagine, right, in their, in their culture. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, it's this kind of legalism, the legalism of this Pharisee in this parable, the kind of legalism that led Jesus to pronounce a woe against them, which is a statement of judgment against them. It's that kind of legalism that so many Christians fear today with respect to the practice of tithing. And I think, frankly, every Christian who fears that is right to do so, and they're right to seek to avoid such legalism. But I would hasten to add that just because something may be done in a legalistic way does not mean that it cannot be practiced in a proper way that recognizes that all we have is by the grace of God. In fact, remember Jesus said to them, this you ought to have done, but with the right attitude, with the right heart, for the right reasons, right? Without hypocrisy, without legalism. I would also warn against using the charge of legalism as an excuse to be stingy with what God has given us. I don't have a problem with a Christian saying, I don't think we should bother tithing because I think it leads to legalism. I think that's one of the reasons maybe it's not commanded of Christians anymore. It too easily leads to legalism. Um, there's nothing wrong with making that argument unless the real reason you're making that argument is you want an excuse not to give very much. That would be a bad reason to make that argument. So I'm saying we can make really good, biblical, sound theological arguments for not doing something really because in our hearts we don't like the idea of giving at all. So don't let that be. If you're one of the people who says, I don't think we need to bother with tithing, and I think it's dangerous because it could be legalistic just like the Pharisees did, I just want to avoid it. Well, that's fine. Just search your heart and make sure that the reason for that is a love for God rather than a love of money that you just don't want to give. Because that's bad too. If we're like that, we're no better really than the Pharisees. And there's a woe pronounced on us too, I would think. Now, as for Matthew 23, 23, we have to remember that Jesus was dealing with those who were still under the law. When he said, you should have done this, you ought to have done this. Of course, they were under the law. They had to do what the law said, right? So, of course, they ought to have done it. And so, we cannot say that because Jesus said you ought to have done this here, that he intended to enjoin the practice of tithing upon the new covenant church. This text is not a text you can hang that on. I've read some things online, and I've heard some other preachers think that it is, but it is not. Because again, he was speaking to those under the law, and we're not under the law. But we can say that Jesus approved of and encouraged tithing as a practice if done with the right motives. Jesus was not unpleased with what Abraham and Jacob did when they tithed. Third, the means of supporting the Levites under the Old Covenant is affirmed by Paul as a good example for Christians to follow in support of their ministers under the New Covenant. This is what I was alluding to earlier when I said Paul will actually allude to the way the Levites were taken care of in the old, under the Old Covenant as, in principle, uh, he would apply that principle of doing that to 
to taking care of pastors in the church. Um, now this is in 1 Corinthians 9. I'd like to read uh, verses 1 through 14 there so we can get more of the passage and then we'll, we'll really focus on verses 13 and 14. And Paul says here, uh, beginning in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. There was something going on where there were some people questioning Paul's right to the status of apostle, and, and Paul's just pointing out to the Corinthians, surely you of all people wouldn't be among them, right? If anybody should know I'm an apostle, it's you guys, right? And then he says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas, or Peter. It's his Aramaic name, Cephas. So apparently Peter and the brothers of the Lord, when they traveled and ministered, they took their wives with them. And he said, well, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? These people, apparently, these other apostles, didn't work other jobs. They did their ministry. Even if they brought their wives along, they were taken care of, apparently, by the church. And Paul said, do we not have that right, too? He says, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to work at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? This is interesting. He's appealing to the Old Testament law. Not because he thinks we're under the law. Paul, you know, does not think that. Uh, but because he does think, however, we can, we can find principles in the law that might apply to a similar situation. And that's what he does here. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of this hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap mater your material things? The implication there is, um, if you've benefited so greatly spiritually, You've been saved from your sins. You've been given the fruit of the Spirit. You've been given peace and joy and life everlasting and so forth. Is it too much to ask that you help us make ends meet? That's the kind of question he's asking. If others are partakers of this right over you, which apparently the Corinthians have no problem with, are we not even more? Remember, they planted this church. Paul planted this church. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Now he's, he's alluding here to the Old Testament priests and how they were able to share in the things that were brought in order to live. And he says, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Now, 
Paul does not explicitly mention the tithes that were given to the Lord for the sustaining of the Levitical priesthood when he mentions the offerings to the altar and so forth. But as we saw in our earlier reading of the Mosaic Law, the tithe was def definitely a primary means of their support, right? And Paul clearly does see the concept of their sharing and what is given by the people as a model for the support of pastors today. And I think it's important to note that he doesn't specify the tithe. Because the principle Paul's going to use for giving is going to be a little different. But we could say that tithing is a good idea, even if it's not something that can be demanded. Because, of course, to demand it when Scripture does not would be the very kind of legalism we saw earlier that Jesus despised. But there is a principle that's the same. Even if we don't specify, even if Paul doesn't specify a tithe, and the principle is of this, just like the Levites under the Old Covenant who served the Lord were able to partake of the offerings of the people in order to survive, even so, those who minister the word to the churches may do the same. And he says, that is a command of the Lord. Not the tithe per se, but this principle that those who sow spiritual things may reap material things and, and live from that is, he says, a command. That's important to keep in mind, however we think about giving. Uh, the Apostle Paul also mentions later in the same epistle the importance of a person's giving as he may prosper. And that's almost all Paul really says about it. He adds something to that later, the idea of cheerfully. Um, but he says in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of the week, let each of you lay something aside. That's because they meant to worship on the first day of the week. Storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Now here he has in mind specific collections that they're taking uh, for the starving saints in Jerusalem. Again, Paul doesn't explicitly mention tithing or giving any fixed percentage of one's income. But he does clearly see the importance of giving in proportion to what one has. And tithing would surely be a good way of putting that principle into practice, I would say. There's a fourth thing to point out here. And there are, there are many believers who think that this does constitute a command to tithe. That this presupposes that all Christians ought to tithe and therefore is equivalent to a command. There are, there are many good Bible-believing Christians who think that Hebrews 7 teaches that. And I'll show you why. Uh, it does show that tithing is a good way to honor Christ as our high priest and king, at the very least, I would argue. But uh, here in he Hebrews 7, uh, I told you this guy Melchizedek would show up again in our study, and this is where he shows up. Um, so I wasn't wrong to see that as a key text, right, <laughs> on, on, on this issue, because the author of Hebrews does, um, and for a lot more reasons than what I showed you earlier. He says in Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, Salem, remember later, was called Jerusalem, Jerusalem, right? It's, by the way, it's not a, a coincidence that Jesus put the capital there because he also saw himself as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And in that way, he was a type of Christ too, David was. Um, at any rate, uh, 
This is a typological figure at the very least, this Melchizedek. Uh, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. And now they're talking about the meaning of Melchizedek's name, the author of Hebrews is. First of all, being translated king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. It comes from the Hebrew words Melech and Sadiq, which means king and righteousness. The name, his name literally means king of righteousness. And without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, remains a priest continually. He's saying the reason we know nothing else about Melchizedek is because he serves as a type of Christ here, the son of God. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from among the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, Beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Who is greater than Abraham? Melchizedek. <laughs> Buzz. <laughs> you, you might look at the Old Testament account of Abraham and you think there's nobody greater than Abraham. Melchizedek was. Right. He was greater than Abraham. That's what he's saying. Um, here, he says, mortal men receive... He uses the present tense, present tense there, tithes. Now he's talking to Hebrew believers who may have still maintained some practices, right, that they were used to as Jews, although they were now Christians. And he's making a big case here that they're no longer under the law, that the Old Testament law has been abrogated by the coming of Christ and the new covenant. That's a huge argument of the book of Hebrews. And in the midst of that argument, he doesn't say tithing doesn't matter at all. What does he say? Here mortal men receive tithes. It's going on right now. Now is he talking about the temple that still exists? Or is he talking about the Christians? And then he says, but there he receives them. Who's the he? It's got to be Christ to whom Melchizedek pointed, most scholars would say here of whom it is witnessed that he lives, present tense. Now notice what he's saying. He's saying there's a practice of tithing still going on where mortal men are receiving tithes. And there's also a practice of tithing still going on that Jesus is receiving. And the implication would be that the people, the Hebrew believers were tithing. And that the author of Hebrews sees that as a very good thing. And some Christians, as I said, see in this passage clear evidence of the practice of Christian tithing. Um, they would argue that just as Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek, uh, who is at the very least said to be a type of Christ in this passage, so we too give tithes, plural, because there's more than one of us and there was only one Abraham, um, to Jesus. We give them to Jesus, who is our great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, the author of Hebrews, it is argued, assumes that the believers to whom he was writing did tithe and that he obviously thought it was right to do so. Now, I'm not entirely certain that that way of reading Hebrews 7, 8 is correct. Um, 
I think if he was going to point out tithing as something Christians ought to do, it maybe it, it, we we would want a little clearer text than that. But I can see why people think it's presupposed there. Uh, but because I'm not entirely convinced by that reading, uh, I don't see it as an ample basis for saying that Christians have a command to tithe. Um, or an, an approved example that we must follow. Um, there, are some, there are some things in the New Testament, I'll get into this in the coming week, that are approved examples that we must follow even though they're not explicit commands. And uh, that's what people think, who think that this amounts to command to tithe. That's what they think of this text. But even if we don't see it, even if we're not convinced that it's such an approved example that we must follow, um, for example, just because he approved of the Hebrews who might still tithe because they were Jews and they were used to tithing and they wanted to keep doing this for Jesus, just because he approved of them doing it doesn't mean he thought everybody had to. Just like God's approving that Abraham did this doesn't mean that we have to, necessarily. So I would see it, you can make that argument from the cases, from the passages, what I'm saying. And so it's not sufficient to me. But I would say this, that if Abraham honored Melchizedek as a priest of the Most High God by giving a tithe to him, why shouldn't we see it as a good way to honor Christ as our great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us? If Abraham honored Melchizedek as the king of Salem by giving the tithe to him, why shouldn't we see it as a good way to honor Christ as our king? But shouldn't we want to honor Christ at least as much as Abraham honored Melchizedek? So that's why I say, I would rather ask the question, why shouldn't we tithe? I mean, what's wrong with it? Well, for most people, what's wrong with it is tense, a tenth seems too much to me. That's what's wrong with it. <laughs> If they're being honest. Most people, that's probably what's going. Well, they're not going to like the second part of the message that's coming up at all then. But um, I think John Piper has offered this further encouragement to consider tithing as an option. I think he sees it as more necessary than I do. I try to be very careful in how I'm presenting this. I'm encouraging it as a good example to follow. I'm not saying we must do it or we're sinning. Right? I think we should be getting people over sinning. But how much, that's an individual thing still in my mind. But John Piper's offered this further encouragement, as I said. One objection, he writes, to thinking of a tenth of our income as especially belonging to God is that all our money belongs to God. Uh, Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. That is absolutely true, he writes. It is why my main way of talking about money year in and year out at Bethlehem, where he used to pastor, is not a focus on tithing, but to focus on lifestyle. What you do with every cent says something about your view of God and what he means to you and what your values are in this age and what you think your few years on earth should be spent for. That's true. But God is wise and knows us deeply. He knows that there's something wrong with the husband who answers his wife's complaint that he doesn't give her any time by saying, what do you mean I don't give you my time? All my time is yours. I work all day long for you and the children. That has a very hollow ring if, it, if he doesn't uh, give her any special time. Giving her some evenings together and some dates does not deny that all his time is for her. It proves it. 
This is why God declares one day and seven especially God's. They're all his, and making one special proves it. And this is the way it is with our money and God. Giving God a tenth of our income does not deny that all our money is God's. It proves that we believe it. Tithing is like a constant offering of the first fruits of the whole thing. The tenth is yours, O Lord, in a special way, because all of it is yours in an ordinary way. I believe the tithe, he writes, should be the first check we write after the income deposit is made in the bank. And when you write it, you put a seal over what's left. It's God's. The tithe reminds us of that and proves that we really believe it. This is why he thinks it's a good practice. Now, again, I think he would stress it a little more than I would. I would say giving regularly does that, whatever the amount is. So, in summary thus far, can I say that Christians who are members of the New Covenant Church are commanded in Scripture to tithe? No, I don't think I can say that. And uh, to try to demand tithing as though it is commanded of a Christian in Scripture would be legalism, which, as I said before, I abhor. However, I do think we can encourage tithing as a godly practice for Christians to follow. If you're thinking... Where should I? I haven't really been giving. I want to start giving. Where should I start? And you're casting about the scriptures looking for a place to start. I can't think of a better place to start than a tithe. If you want a good idea from scripture where you could start, I can't think of a better place than that. Right? Um, but this leads to my next question. Why shouldn't we do more than tithe? You know, when the John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Christ and to call God's people to repentance. He said this in Luke 3.11, He who has two tunics, let him give to one who has none. You have two and you give one away. He who has food, let him do likewise. Be willing to give away half your food. That's the likewise. Now that kind of giving goes way beyond a tithe. That's, that's half of what you have. But our Lord Jesus went even further when he taught about what we should at least be willing to give up for him. He doesn't demand this of everyone, but, but he, he demands that we all be willing. In Luke 14, 33, he says, So likewise, whoever of you who does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus doesn't require, right? He didn't require that uh, the sons of thunder give up their boating, you know, fishing business forever, right, necessarily. They had to be willing to, though. So although the Christian is nowhere commanded to tithe, he is called upon to at least be willing to give up, at least be willing to give up everything for Jesus. I think a tenth is a small thing in comparison to that. <laughs> However, perhaps the primary text dealing with giving in the church is found in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And so I want to look at a couple of key passages in these chapters. We can't read all of 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 this morning. We don't have time for that. But I'm going to read a couple of key texts. And here, remember, they were taking up collections for the starving saints in Jerusalem. And Paul was going around to these various Gentile churches. And they were making plans for that when Paul came again, he could pick up the money and take it with him to help the starving saints in Jerusalem. So that's the kind of giving that's mainly being talked about here. 
But there are principles talked about here that apply to all of our giving, right? Here in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 9, we read of a particularly giving church that Paul, or a group of churches, that Paul lifts up as an example for not just the Corinthians, but all believers to emulate. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, beginning verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. He's talking here about giving. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. So they were a, poor, they were a, a persecuted, poverty-stricken group of churches in Macedonia. And they begged Paul, take this money, which Paul said they could not afford to give, but they did anyway, because they saw it as a way of fellowshipping with the other suffering saints in Jerusalem and taking part in the ministry there. And they wanted to be a part of that. Wow. Look at the grace of God to them. And he said, and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. Titus is the bag man, so to speak. He's going to pick up the money and take it back. That's a bad analogy. Uh, you know what I mean. He's going to collect the money. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Here he's talking about giving as a grace. And then he says in verse 8, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. In other words, you claim to love the Lord and the other saints as much as the Macedonians claim to love the Lord and the other saints. Are you willing to show it like they did? I'm not commanding you to do that, he says. I'm offering you a test. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? He says, for you know by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So he's held up the Macedonian example, but that's not the clincher for Paul. The Macedonians were being like Jesus who, though being rich, became poor for our sakes. And so what he's really saying is, I'm not just saying be like the Macedonians in their love for Christ. I'm saying be like Christ himself in his love for you. That's the kind of giving heart he wants to see in the Corinthians, and I would argue in all believers. Although Paul asserts clearly that he doesn't command that kind of sacrificial giving, such as the Macedonians were doing, he nevertheless does see it as a good example for all to follow. So long as they can give in such a manner with a joyful heart, he will go on to add. Later on in 2 Corinthians 9, we'll read verses 6 through 11. 
where Paul says this, but this I say, he who, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. After he's challenged the Corinthians to consider the example, not only of the Macedonians, but of Christ himself, and to search their hearts and to be willing to give sacrificially he then goes on to say, but I'm not asking anybody to do anything grudgingly or without joy in their hearts. No, he's saying, I'm, I'm saying that as you think about that example I've given you, give what you can give cheerfully and not grudgingly. So give in proportion to what you have, we saw earlier, and also give what you can give cheerfully. We see added to that here. And always with the mindset as of wanting to give as much as you possibly can, even if it means sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Always trying to have that as your motivation. That's what Paul would say about giving. It doesn't sound like Paul would be really happy with somebody who says, well, I give a tenth and that's enough. Yeah, but there are more people, Christians, starving, and they need more help. Well, but I give a tenth, and that's enough. Remember, this was a special offering he was talking about. This wasn't the being set aside by that church for a special thing. They're already giving beyond what they're normally giving. Paul is, um, I have a feeling that Paul did more than tithe. If I had to guess, Paul gave a lot more than that. But he does talk about this also, this principle of sowing and reaping. The idea seems to be that if we really want to be able to give sacrificially, God will make sure we have enough to do it with. If that's our heart, God will bless that, right? Um, in fact, in that way, his teaching is similar to what the Lord said through the prophet Malachi, Malachi 3.10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me knowing this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will be uh, not enough room to keep it. What he's saying to them is, if you, if you fear giving because you fear I won't take care of you, don't worry about that. I'll take plenty of good care of you. I'll, I'll, you'll be blown away by how good a care I'll take of you if you trust me. So that's the issue behind that text. They weren't trusting him. Luke 6.38, Jesus said, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom with the same measure that you use will be measured back to you. Yeah, I think I'll conclude with another I think helpful quote from John Piper that I think summarizes some of what we've seen here, at least the, the heart of it from Paul in our Lord Jesus. He writes this, I think God took the focus off giving a tithe in the early church because he wants his people to ask themselves a new question. The question that Jesus drives us to ask again and again is not how much should I give, but rather how much dare I keep? 
One of the differences between the Old Testament and New Testament is the Great Commission. By and large, the Old Testament people of God were not a missionary people. I would argue that they should have been more than they were. <laughs> that, that aside, he goes on to say, but the New Testament church is fundamentally a missionary people. The spiritual hope and the physical and emotional sustenance that Jesus brought to earth is to be extended by his church to the whole world. The task he gave us is so immense and requires such a stupendous investment of commitment and money that the thought of settling the issue of what we give by a fixed percentage, like a tenth, is simply out of the question. My own conviction, he writes, is that the most is that most middle and upper class Christians who merely tithe are robbing God. He could be right about that. Only those people in God know that, right? In a world where 10,000 people a day starve to death, and many more than that are perishing in unbelief, the question is not what percentage must I give, but how much dare I spend on myself? I think he's right about the attitude Christians ought to have there, don't you? Based on what we've read. So, as a, one of your elders here, am I saying, you better tithe? No. If, if you're not used to giving, and for you, 2 or 5% or whatever it turns out to be is what you can do cheerfully, then I say start with that. Start somewhere. But if that's the fixed percentage that you're going to give, say, to the church, don't let that be all you're giving. There's lots of other opportunities to give, too, to missions and to other believers who have need in the church at different times and so forth. Do that, too. What I'm saying is be a giving person always, all the time. That's what Jesus calls us to be. And when you think about what you're going to give to the church, be that kind of person when you think about it. That's all, I would say. And then whatever you can give and give cheerfully, then give that. I don't care what the percentage is. It doesn't matter to me. I don't know anyway. But, but please, whatever you do, never be the kind of person that resents giving. Because if you're that kind of person, you need to hear Jesus' words. You cannot serve both God and money. can't. You've got to choose. And if your giving really represents your choosing money, there's an idol in your life and you need to repent of it. I would say that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, I've tried to give an overview of this whole concept of giving and where tithing might fit in. And I've tried to be careful and balanced in doing it faithful to your word in doing it. Lord, I really believe what you care most about in each one of us is that we're just giving people, giving of our time, giving of our money, giving of anything that we have for others when there's a need, that we're just giving people, that we're like Jesus. And I just pray that you'll help each one of us to just pursue whatever we give and however, however much it is and wherever we give, to just be driven by how can I be more like Jesus in my heart, in, in what I do with what I have. 
And we'll always then be doing the right thing. It'll always be the right amount, whatever you lay on our heart, however big or small. It'll always be the right amount then. And Lord, help us not to uh, fall into the trap of legalism. And um, Some of us who began tithing because we thought it was a good idea, maybe then it has become a legalistic thing and we need, it's a trap we have fallen into. Maybe we ought to quit if that's the case. Help us, Lord, to just give cheerfully and not begrudgingly whatever it is we give because we're worshiping you when we do it. We're saying mammon is not our God. You are. And we're saying we trust you more than anything else. Lord, we'll give you the glory for what you do as a result of this teaching. We pray all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.